Morning, Grace Points. Uh, my name is Andrew. If I haven't met you already, one of the church family here. And it's my joy and privilege to explain God's word this morning. I want to echo again mine and Chong's welcome. If you haven't heard already, you are so welcome to the year. Uh, if today is your first day, welcome. You're welcome here. If today is your thousandth day, you're so welcome here. If you are barely awake and you're a bit out of it, you're, we- you're welcome here as well. If you fall asleep in my talk, you're still welcome here as well. Uh, each week at Grace Point, we read through the Bible in order, working through it step by step as its story and logic unfolds. And so far, we've seen through Romans that the message of Jesus, there is good news. Jesus has come as the King. He brings true peace, true righteousness, and true justice. For every single person, even us, God offers salvation to those who turn to him. Freely, doesn't come with a cost. Salvation, not from our hard work, but from the finished work of Jesus. But the logic of Romans shifts when we get to our section here today. Two weeks, oh, that is not the right slide. Oh, that is okay. Two weeks ago, we heard that the righteousness of God is revealed in verse 17, and it kind of continues that argument in chapter 321, if you think about it. It just goes righteous of God there, righteous of God in chapter 3, showing that the righteousness of God is revealed only through faith in Jesus Christ. But what's going on in the middle? See, there is good news, great news in the gospel of Jesus, bringing salvation to everyone who believes. But when you talk about salvation, you imply that there is something to be saved from. There is such good news in Jesus because there is some serious bad news about us, about others, about the world that we live in. It's kind of like the night sky, if you imagine it with me. Imagine the bright shining stars and the reflecting moon. They shine so much brighter and look so much better because of the dark canvas that surrounds them. And the more that we realize the absence of light in the dark sky, the brighter we see the stars. The darker the night sky, the brighter the stars. And that's kind of what's happening in Romans at this point. There is such good news in the gospel, and Paul wants us to see it as good news, but here he helps us to see it by showing us how bad the bad news is. But the question I want to ask us this morning is, how did we get here? Why is our world the way that it is? Why are our relationships with each other and even with ourselves the way that it is? I don't know about you, but sometimes I look at the state of our world and I get so incredibly sad. Why is it that for children, the rate of exposure to pornography is 11 years and rapidly dropping? Why is it uncommon Not uncommon for children to be exposed even by the age of five. Why is it that in the 21st century, we have 50 million people still in slavery? Five million of them forced into sexual exploitation. And out of that 50 million, 2,000 are in Australia, if not more. Why is it that if you are on Centrelink as a student in Australia, you are automatically in the top 10% of the world's wealth. Yet I still find myself asking why I don't have enough. Why is it that 
even though there is more than enough food to feed everyone on the planet, 800 million people still go hungry. Why is it that as soon as I start hearing those stats that I feel sad for a second, but then becoming a bit overwhelmed, I tune it all out, it's just too hard to think about. It's just the way that it is. What is it within me that makes me so often underreact to injustice around me or the greater world? What is it within me that makes me so often overreact when people get in my way, that I get annoyed and offended, when work colleagues or fellow students, they don't do their bit or they do it too slow, how easy it is for my anger and impatience to flare up. At beloved family members, when they've said or done something wrong, what is it within me that makes me look in the mirror and often feel like I can't stand myself? From the way that I look to the way that I treat others, why is it that I struggle so much to change, to grow? How come I can so often look myself in the eyes and feel insecure, can feel racked with guilt, filled with shame? How did we get here? Friends, we don't see ourselves, others, or the world we live in very well, do we? Our relationships with ourselves, others, and the world is so far from how they should be. They are so deeply broken. And the Bible speaks into this, claiming that our broken relationships with the world and each other, they all flow out of a broken relationship with God himself. That we are in broken relationship with the God who made the world. He made it good, who made our relationships good, but we have said that we want nothing to do with our good creator And so every relationship that we are part of now is deprived of his goodness. That's a really bleak start to a talk. It's really bad news, really horrible news, isn't it? It's shocking. But again, the point is, it's like the stars against the night sky. The more that we see the depths of the darkness of our world, the more that we will see the depths of his goodness and his light. There's a talk outline in your bulletins to follow or online on your little thing. Um, it's got a f- we work through the passage with a few subheadings, a few R's, just like relationship. What's been revealed? What have been the results of our actions? What's our reality now? And how will we get back to a restored reality? And remember, at the heart of it all is a relationship with God himself. So crucial in solving all of this. Keep your Bibles open to Romans 1, 18 to 23. We need God's help, so let's ask him for help. Please pray with me. Father God, we do not feel as we should. We do not act as we should. We are so deeply in need of your help, and so we ask for your help. Would you speak to us from your word and restore us back to how we should be? We pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Firstly, what's been revealed? Well, in verse 17, it's the righteousness of God that's revealed. But in verse 18, the beginning of our passage today, the wrath of God is being revealed. Good news, bad news. Salvation is revealed as judgment is revealed. 
And the passage quickly gets to the heart of people and what you and I and we are like. How are people described here? Godless and wicked. We've said we want nothing to do with God. We're godless, and so we ignore our loving Creator. But also, we're wicked. We treat each other horribly all the time. Sometimes on the mass scales of exploitation and ambivalence, as we talked about earlier, but even closer to home, even to those that we love, to those around us, maybe people in this room even, we act wickedly towards them. Sometimes in our deeds, but more often so in our minds and our hearts. I know times where I have thought the worst of people, grumbling in my heart, torturing them in my mind, passive aggressiveness flowing out with the veneer of a smile. Sometimes outwardly, angrily frustrated at the driver in front of me, drives so bad and is so slow. Why are you like that? We don't treat God right, and we often don't treat each other right either. And so God's wrath that's being revealed here is a right wrath. He's not randomly angry at nothing. He's not emotionally impulsive as if he's throwing a tantrum. He's a just God. He will not stand for the way that we mistreat him and mistreat each other. Uh, You and I, we all hate to see when real, true blue criminals who have done real wrong, we hate it when they get off the hook, when they are not punished. It would be like seeing a cop witnessing a murder, looking left and right, make sure no one's around, shrugging his shoulders and walking off. Can you imagine the headlines on newspapers if that story came out? You and I, we would hate that, wouldn't we? The wrath of God is being revealed because there have been crimes committed. Not small crimes, serious crimes, hurtful crimes. He is just, and so he must judge. But uh, but Paul goes on in Romans, going even further into our condition. He describes us as people who suppress the truth, as if we put our fingers in our ears, ignoring someone in front of us, telling us something. We ignore it, we suppress it. And the natural question to ask is, well, what truth have we suppressed? And Paul answered that in the very next verse. Who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them. Paul is saying that the truth that you and I suppress is a knowledge about who God is. And just like his revealed righteousness and wrath, he's revealed himself to us too. He's made it plain, the passage says. And how has God made himself plain to us? It's in verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. In the very world that you and I live in, even right now, it testifies to some of God's invisible qualities, that he's eternally powerful, that he is divine, that, he God, that God really is God. And it says that it's clear, clearly seen. Just like a painter implies a painter, or a book implies an author, a creation implies a creator. The knowledge that God is God, powerful and divine, 
seen in creation clearly. And Paul wants to say that everyone knows that, but we suppress that truth. Now, that's something that's hard to sort of grapple with in our minds. I haven't suppressed anything, Andrew. I've looked at creation. I didn't think that there was a creator. I didn't think that there was a God. I, I cannot have then suppressed that truth. I, what, what's happening? Yeah, one of the fundamental claims that the Bible makes is that we have done that. We have suppressed the truth, even when we are not aware that we have suppressed the truth. We have indeed known that there is a creator, God over all, knowingly, willingly suppressed. And so the Bible says we are without excuse. But Andrew, you might say, we can't be held accountable for that. I don't even remember suppressing that. But imagine this. Imagine if someone was driving and accidentally ran over someone. They go through trauma reasonably, racked with guilt, but to cope with their trauma, they begin to split their personality, to forget that event, to be able to function normally again, as if it never really happens. That's a sad and horrible thing that happens, but someone is still dead. And while it is understandable while they have suppressed it for their own sake, Justice must still come somehow. Regardless of how much we have been aware or unaware of our suppression of the truth, the fact is, from the Bible's point of view, is that we have done it. Except the difference between the illustration that I gave is that we have suppressed the truth by our wickedness. We have chosen freely but poorly to ignore the Creator, to ignore God. And the only reasonable action from a just God is that his wrath is being revealed against that godless and wicked people, against those who mistreat him and mistreat each other, against us. That's what's being revealed in this passage, the wrath of God. But Paul continues to spell out what is the the result of our actions. Second point in your bulletin. He starts by saying what we should have done. What's the expected response that we should have had to knowing God in verse 21? For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. See, they knew God. Normal response? Well, it's to glorify him, to thank him. If you and I have been given life and good life by the Creator, It's only natural and right to praise him, to thank him, both of which you and I do not do. And so we are left to our own devices, our own wants. We are left in our godlessness, left in our wickedness. Our thinking becomes futile. Our hearts are darkened. See, even earlier when when we react to the stats that I said earlier uh, today of hunger, poverty, inequality, and wealth, we don't feel or think as we should, do we? We underreact far from what would be right. What would be right? With outrage and pain, leading to action and change. Instead, hearts darkened, estranged, thoughts broken, rearranged. There's something wrong with up here, 
hearts led by shame and by fear. Our thinking futile, completely defiled, our hearts darkened, lights off, no guide. But there's something crucial, even far worse, for we deem it not evil, so we need to reverse. We claim to be wise, nice outside, but in reality, fools, hearts chopped up and fried. When all that is good comes from God alone, we cannot leave God, for all that's left here is everything else. No goodness, no kindness, no patience and love. Only the God of above can fix this in his precious beloved. See, as we suppress the truth about God and we leave him, we also leave all that is of him. All that we experience in this world of goodness and love and wonder and amazement, that is only by the good grace of God that we see any glimpses of that at all. In our thinking it wise to leave God, we become fools. We claim to be wise, but that's all that it is, just a claim, an illusory smokescreen for us to manage. The reality underneath is that we are fools for leaving God. Futile hearts, futile thinking, darkened hearts. We have a knowing problem. We have a feeling problem. We do not know as we should. We do not feel as we should. True knowing, true feeling is only found in God alone. If you're a Christian, the fact that you and I can so often hear about the gospel of the good news, of salvation for us because Jesus took our punishment, that he died for us, the death that you and I deserve, the fact that we can hear it so often and yet feel so unmoved is a testimony to this reality here. What kind of futile thinking and darkened hearts do we need to have to be so callous and assumptive of the God who has so deeply loved us. He has killed his own son to make us his sons. What a tragedy it is to trample on his grace. I say this not just to you, but also to myself. You know what is reasonable living under God, if we know that there is God? What's reasonable is to glorify him as God, because, well, he is. It's reasonable to give thanks to him, for he deserves thanks. Every breath we take, every grace we enjoy, every blessing we receive, it's from him. Yet daily I choose not to glorify him, nor to give thanks. It's not just the story of random people Paul is talking about in the past. It's our story. This world we live in is the result of our actions Futile thinking, darkened hearts. We claim to be wise, but became fools instead. And the passage paints even another picture. I think the most horrifying picture in this passage today, explaining how did we get here? Why are things the way that they are? Explaining the reality that we live in now. This is the great exchange. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings, birds, animals, reptiles. The question of purpose is so crucial for every person. Why are you here? For what purpose? 
Every day we get out of bed and we live for something whether we know it or not. We strive for that thing, to achieve that thing. And the thing that you live for can either be fit for purpose or not. I can take almost anything around the house and make it work just like a hammer. Book on the shelf, that'll do the job. TV remotes, that'll do the job too. Wedding ring, even that will do the job. I can make any, almost any of those things a hammer, but the question is, why don't I just use a hammer? Because every time I thrust that book into the nail, I'm not reading it. And I'm probably smashing up the pages so that I can't read it anymore. Every time I take that TV remote and go whack, it probably won't take many hits before it will stop doing what it was made to do. I can even take my tiny wedding ring, meant to remind me of something far bigger and far better, and in doing so, I will destroy it. And in doing so, probably do a terrible job at nailing, hammering too. The Bible talks about each person being made in the image of God, being made for God, to be in a relationship with God, being made like God, to like God, to enjoy all the good things that God gives, like happiness, satisfying work, deep friendships. We're meant to enjoy them and thank, them, thank God for it, to glorify God for it. But the problem is, we so often swap the order. And when that happens, things go terribly wrong. Happiness, when it becomes our God, is a terrible and cruel master. You will always seek happiness above all else. You will only keep relationships around you if they make you happy. And as soon as they go through sadness or disappointment, there's no point to keep them around anymore. When your family displeases you, you throw them away. Physiologically, your body will begin to get numb to happiness. You will only get the same emotional response of happiness with stronger and stronger and stronger stimuli. What made you happy yesterday will not make you happy tomorrow. Work, when it becomes our God, is also a terrible and cruel master. You will climb and climb and achieve and achieve and realize at the top, if you even get there, that you are alone. And the satisfaction you thought you'd get, that you'd get when you're there, it is not there. You will grow old and your usefulness will be spent. Your hands and mind that worked so well before doesn't quite do it the same anymore. What will you live for then? When relationships and people become our God, they are also terrible and cruel masters. You will become a terrible friends because they cannot bear the weight of your need. They cannot fulfill the desires that you have. Inevitably, they will let you down and you will let them down. You will not be there for them when life goes south and again, you will realize that you're all alone. Or you'll cycle through people waiting to find the one or at least finding the one for each stage of life that you go through. And behind you, you'll leave behind a mountain of corpses who are crushed by the weight of your expectation, 
or the ones that you fled for lack of commitments. My TV remote can do the job of a hammer, but it's not what it was made for. And in doing so, it and the nail it hammers will get damaged in the process. You and I, we're made, we're purposed for God, to be in relationship with God, to enjoy the things of God under Him, not to take the good things of God and to make them God things. It's so easy to take good things and make them God things, isn't it? The passage in front of us says that we are by nature God-makers. And every single God that we make is not a good God. Why aren't they good gods? Well, firstly, they aren't God. But even in this passage, the comparison is clear. God is immortal. Humans, animals, birds, reptiles, the gods that you and I make, they are what? Mortal. One lasts forever, others temporary. One can take the weight of our worship, the weight of our hopes, the weight of our dreams. The other will break and shatter under the weight of our expectation. One will satisfy richly and deeply. The other is a drop on the tongue in the middle of a desert. And I think one of the reasons why our gods, the idols that you and I make, they're so appealing is because they're visible, because we can see them. But God is invisible. They seem like we can grab hold of them, embrace them, maybe even control them and bend them to do our will, but God is not like that. God is bigger and better, and God doesn't play by our silly little rules. He makes the rules, and we bend according to his will. While they are cruel, he is kind, and his will is kind. He loves us. These idols that we make do not. The gods and idols we make do not care for us. They are good things to be enjoyed, not good things to be held up as God things. They work for a second, but quickly gone. See, the story of our world is that we are all in need of purpose and we find it in the things that you and I worship. David Foster Wallace, a non-Christian, writes this. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. He goes on. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. And he even gives two examples. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It is the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. There will always be someone prettier. We are all worshippers. But God is the only one, the only thing that can hold up the weight of our worship, the weight of our expectations. And in doing so, God is the only one who will not let us down and not eat you alive as you worship him. 
all of the gods will not satisfy. Only the true and living God will. You know what's really interesting? About 10 years ago, they did um, MRI scans on, on people's brains, on people's brains who were religious. And they saw parts of the brains light up when they worshipped God. Oh, maybe that's the religious part of the brain. They did some more scans of some other people as those people looked at images of Apple iPhones. Guess what part of the brain lit up? Exact same parts. We're all naturally worshippers, aren't we? And God tells us that we are made for relationship with him, to worship him alone. So the question I want to ask you today is, what is it for you? Who do you worship? What do you worship? I think it's so important to ask that question that I want to give you just 10 seconds just to think for yourself. What is this answer for you, just in your own heads? Anything that you worship that is not God will eat you up. Did you notice in the passage, we exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like stuff? The language here is quite deliberate because we were made to be the image of God. We're made to be image bearers of God, made to look like God to the rest of the world, made to act like God to the rest of the world in caring for the world. But we trade that away. And instead of looking like God to the creation, we look to the creation as God. We look to the creation to care for us. It's the complete reversal of what we were made for. We exchange the creator for the creation. That is the great exchange. And it's at the heart of the reality that you and I live in right now. It's the reason why you and I have so many broken relationships in the world because of our broken relationship with God. That is the dark night sky, canvas with the bright shining lights. It's a deep, dark, bad news from which the good news begins to shine bright. For the good news of Jesus does not leave you and I this morning in darkness. But he says that even right now, even though we live in a broken, cracked reality, Jesus has come to our broken reality to restore our reality to what it was always made to be. Jesus comes to dwell amongst us, fully man, fully God. And he shows us what it means to be human. He comes and unlike us, He knows God. He doesn't suppress the truth. He glorifies God. He thanks God, as you and I should have. He lives the life that we did not, the life that we could not. And he shows us what it means to be truly human, with real weakness, real pain, just like you and I face each day. He comes and shows us what it is to be the true image of God in himself. We traded the immortal God for images made to look like mortal things. The immortal God comes to earth in Jesus. And inexplicably, he gives himself up for who? For mortal man. 
the immortal God dies shamefully on a cross, the immortal for the mortal. It's mind-bending. Just as crazy as it is for us to exchange the creator for the creation, Jesus exchanges himself, the creator, for the creation. But thankfully, the immortal God could not be bound by death and so rises again in life as we celebrated last week at Easter. Jesus restores our reality, being the reality that you and I were meant to be, that we could not be. In his life, death, and resurrection, for every single person who trusts in his great exchange for what he has done for us, he brings us back into our relationship with God. He fixes the central relationship that we need to fix. And so doing so, we'll begin to mend every other relationship in this world too. We suppress the truth by our wickedness. Jesus teaches us and shows us that he is the true and only God. He restores truth. We're given over to what we want in our godlessness, futile thinking, darkened hearts. What does Jesus do? He comes to give us a new heart, a clean heart, a heart of flesh and not stone, a heart that beats for the things that his beats for, to love what he loves and hate what he hates. Jesus sends us his spirit to dwell inside of us, who leads us into all truth and is our guide and help. What does he restore? He restores our thinking. He restores our feeling. Dark night sky, bright shining lights. Horrible bad news, glorious good news. Friends, if you are not a Christian this morning, can I say there is really good news for you in Jesus? But can I say that the place that you are in right now, it is dangerous. What will you live for that will truly satisfy you and will truly last? What will give you purpose, a robustness to the way that you approach all the things of your life, in your fun, in your relationships, in your work? What will be robust, a purpose enough, a purpose, an object of worship that will not eat you up? Anything other than a kind and loving God will chew you up and spit you out. And let me tell you, you are not made for that. You are made for so much more. God sees you. God knows you. God loves you. And he invites you to come and trust in what he has done. To come and worship him and him alone. He can satisfy everything you want and more. He gives abundantly in himself all that we could ever need. He will never crumble under the weight of your hopes and dreams. He casts a vision far larger and far more beautiful than this world. He doesn't say, come when you've cleaned yourself up, when you've made yourself good. He says, come now. And he welcomes you with outstretched arms. If that's you, we'll pray in a moment. It would be great to make that prayer your own and as an expression of trust in God and not yourself. It would be great if you come down to the front after service. We would love to meet you and celebrate with you. That would be wonderful. If you're a Christian in the room, one of the silliest things to do today after hearing God's word is to go back and worship all the gods that you and I have made. They are lifeless, soul-crushing, and will consume you. God is life-giving, soul-restoring. Go to him, taste again, and see that the Lord is good. Imagine an orphan covered in mud, groaning with hunger, 
being taken in by the kindest king and being made his son. He dresses you with the finest robes, lavishes on you every good gift, and invites you to the dinner table, the banquet to feast. Maybe Mexican, as we heard about next week. To worship the things of this world again is like leaving the palace, going back to the slums, making pies out of mud, and chewing down them voraciously. That would be so bizarre. And so much worse, it is ultimately, it wouldn't match who God has made you to be, his very own child. This week, why not in the beginning of each day, at the end of each day, practice another great exchange? Instead of thanklessness and godlessness, practice knowing God, glorifying God, thanking God for his creation. Realize the things that are driving you, motivating you, things that you desire deeply, and to talk to God about that in prayer. Here are some examples of things that I pray. This is letting you into my own world. Things that I pray are like this. Father, I'm so driven by wanting to be loved and recognized at work and in my family, but people don't seem to notice me or see me. Father, would you remind me again of how you do love me? and how you do see me. Thank you that Jesus shows me again on the cross that you do love me, that you do see me. Glory to you, God. Thank you, God. Amen. Or another prayer. Father, I'm a nervous wreck today. Everything feels out of control. Nothing is going to plan. I can't predict what will happen. My heart is beating so fast, and I'm anxious, and I'm scared. Father, would you remind me again that you are in control. That even when I don't understand and I don't have the power to control things, thank you that you do. You control all things. You know what's going on. You do have the power to enact change. Even when my life feels awash at sea, each moment is part of your good plan for me. Thank you that you are in control. Thank you that it is much better to have you in control than me. Glory to you. Amen. What would it look like to pray that for yourself this week at the beginning and end of your days? And I must give a caveat to today's sermon. I've encouraged you today to look lots at the darkness of the night sky so that you might see the bright and shining news we have in the gospel. But can I encourage you, do not meditate too long on the dark news. Do not meditate too long on sin because we do not grow by meditating on sin or trying harder to fix our sin, being better, less sinful. How do we grow? We grow by looking elsewhere, looking at Jesus. We grow by remembering the good news of the gospel. We grow by feeling the good news of the great exchange on the cross. Let me tell you this story as an illustration to close. A captain and his beloved crew went out to sea one day, but they could not but help pass a particularly dangerous area at sea. There were mythical creatures called sirens there. Sirens are creatures that lure sailors away off the boats by their beautiful appearances and mesmerizing songs. But once the sailors jumped off the boats, they would get embraced by these sirens, but then they would be then strangled and drowned. The dangerous part of sea. 
As they passed the siren-infected sea, some sailors tried to shove cotton buds into their ears to drown out the siren song, but it didn't work. The siren song still pierced deep within, filled them with longing and desire for them. But it was at this moment the captain did an amazing thing. Instead of stuffing his ears with cotton or his fellow sailors' ears, he began to sing. And he sung of his love for the crew, of their brotherhood. He sung of their union. He sung of their love. And the sailors heard this. And they were won by a better song. They didn't need to try to drown out the call of the sirens. They were so deeply captivated by the better song of the captain because it was more wonderful. It was a call not of fake beauty and allure, but it was a true call of real love and deep purpose. The way to grow is not to look more intently upon the images of things that we've worshipped. The way to grow is to look at Jesus, to gaze at his beauty and drink deeply from his well, take him up on his offer of satisfaction and see him come through. As you struggle with worshipping the things of this world this week, turn back quick to look at Jesus. Open his word again. Remember his promises. Feel his love again. And as you hear the noise of this world call you to worship it, hear something better. Hear the better song, the more wonderful song, the song of the creator who has given himself for the creation, the song of the great exchange. Would you pray with me? Father God, we realize now that the worship of this world will crush us. So help us not to make good things God things. We turn back to you now, whether for the first time or the thousandths, and we say that we're sorry. We have not glorified you or thanked you as we should. We have traded your goodness and glory for fleeting and silly things. We have not treated you as we should. We have not treated others as we should. We have not treated ourselves as we should. We have gotten ourselves in this mess. But we remember Jesus, who has come as the immortal God to exchange himself for us, mortal humans. You love us. You see us. You know us. And so we come to you now with thanks. And we glorify your name, not ours. You are so much better. Help us to live for you this week as we sing of the great exchange, the creator who gave himself for his creation. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.